I'm Iris McAlpin, and you're listening to Pure Curiosity, an exploration of the human experience and what it takes to be mentally healthy in our modern world. Do you mind, just for the people that aren't familiar with you yet, do a, a little brief intro? Sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, what do I call myself now? A recovering neuroscientist. I spent, uh, I guess I spent like 10 or 15 years doing um, neuroscience research since I was pretty young uh, with David Eagleman, who's been my mentor for a long time. And he's just uh, got me interested in three pounds of wet stuff in your head and why that uh, is responsible for your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations and all the things that we wish we did differently and all the ways that we think that we're broken or wrong or or sometimes succeeding, um, all that seems to come from, from brain cells, uh, as far as we can tell. So I got fascinated with that. I got fascinated with why we show empathy for some people and not other people. So I um, did a lot of brain imaging, put people in brain scanners like an MRI, and you show them pictures or videos of people being hurt or stabbed with a needle, and you, you sort of see these empathic areas light up. And then you can immediately see that when you start to label these people, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jew, atheist, you start to see those empathy responses really change, whether they're part of your team or not part of your team. We published this paper um, a couple of years ago and uh, got it into The Economist. Uh, so I've just been sort of going heavy down that path of like, all right, if we acknowledge that we are dealt some biological machinery, like how would we want the world to look to be most compatible with that, to leave the most number of people mm-hmm. well off? And so I, I left academia for the most part and um, I work now in the private sector trying to build something that realizes that vision. Hmm. So I really want to revisit that study that you and David did because it's it feels especially important right now. Do you mind slowing that down a little and telling people a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I spent, as part of my thesis work, so I spent years and years thinking about this. And um, basically, your brain has um, certain areas that are activated when we show empathy for one another. When we, And empathy distinct from sympathy. Empathy being, I feel with you. Like, when you get hurt, there's just an automatic feeling. I feel like, oh, I, you know, I, I love you and you're awesome. Like, oh, God, that sucks. And that's different and distinct from sympathy where it's like, if I find out somebody punched somebody else, let's say, okay, well, I know that person, but the other person was their enemy and they were mean. So maybe I feel a little bit good or do I, or do I have to feel bad or right yet when you do that, we also call it mentalizing. To me, there's no distinction between sort of sympathy and understanding another person's situation and being kind about it. And, uh, you have to understand the other person versus empathy is that automatic immediate response. And so we're just interested, you know, plenty of studies have shown that along with, um, when you feel for somebody, you're more likely to help them. You're more likely to. Um, you know, uh, be not kind to people that you don't feel empathy for. Just like you don't typically mind stepping on cockroaches, and you don't mind cutting down trees, and you don't mind doing lots of um, lots of sort of stuff that that seems obvious to us. But you know, why do you show empathy for humans and dogs and apes, and not for cockroaches and uh, all the bacteria that you kill with soap? You know, all the all the <laughs> killing that you do on a regular basis is like it's just we don't feel bad. So I got interested in like where's that line. Why do people feel empathy? Why do they not? And um, what we did in the study is we, we did brain scans on people and you activate their empathy network by showing people getting hurt. And then you see that if they're on your team, you show more response than if they're not. And uh, it was even more interesting than that, though, that it's, it's so flexible that when you start to put people on teams, like you say, oh, Christians and Muslims are together, then you start to have more of an empathy response for, we call them your allies, but like outgroup religions that are now kind of on your team in this fictitious competition. So it's pretty flexible, pretty fast. And these are arbitrarily assigned teams too, right? Totally like, arbitrary, totally randomized. Yeah. We had a whole bunch of different hands and colors and, um, and uh, skin colors and different, different variations to make sure it was sort of random. And then for this final experiment, we, we did like, okay, so you clearly have an empathic bias based on if they're your part of your team or not. You can measure it in your brain. It changes quickly. Then the question was like, how fast does it form? And so we actually had people come into this, to the study. They'd flip a coin, heads or tails, heads there on the heads team, tails are on the tails team. And then we rerun the whole experiment and you still start to see this bifurcation right away of like, oh, my head team, you know, got stabbed and I'm a heads member. So that makes me feel a little bit, I feel a little bit worse than I do from uh, like a tail person got hurt. So the take home is like, look, 
we're adults in biology. We are very likely to form teams and it affects how much empathy we, we show towards each other, which, which fundamentally affects how we behave. We don't do things that make us feel bad. It changes quickly and it's formed really quickly and completely arbitrarily. Now, what? Now, what do we do with the world? Now that if you, if you take that lens, <laughs> yeah. all of history makes a hell of a lot of sense. You're like, okay, well, all these things, that, the horrible things that people do, you can call it good, bad or whatever, um, but it just is. That is what is likely to happen. So now how do we change society so that it doesn't happen? Yeah. And just so people know, so you show them a picture of a hand and you're like stabbing it with a needle, right? And then that hand is given some kind of label like Christian, Muslim, A-team, B-team, and people were responding based on that. Yeah, they just watch that. And uh, you just like in a movie, typically when you see someone get hurt, you kind of cringe and you feel those emotions. Our brain doesn't necessarily know the difference really between what's really there and what's a movie. Yeah, that's true. I think about that a lot. Just in terms of like watching violence in media, it's like, it's sort of the same, I would think, biologically as watching it really happen to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you didn't evolve with video cameras, so you don't have special circuitry to figure it out. So mm -hmm. otherwise, like you, you know, you would be able to not cry during sad movies. And yet you do. You know, I, I cry mm -hmm. during movies sometimes and I'm just like, God, I know this is not real. And yet it just doesn't matter. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that just goes to show how much we think we're in charge from this high level consciousness and yet how much our low level brain circuitry hands the world to us. For sure. So I guess the question now, and I think maybe for the sake of our audience's well-being, let's let's like dive into the bad news first and then like try our best to leave on a high note. But given that we immediately sort of place ourselves in, in groups and out groups and we tend to have empathy for people within our in-group and not so much for people in the out group. And this happens automatically without our conscious choice. And we're seeing a ton of that playing out politically right now. What do we do with this? <laughs> so we wrote this article in The Economist and uh, it was cool. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that they let us contribute because we were just talking about our research and sort of what the take-home lesson. So we came up with a few different strategies on how we can, I don't know if re-empathize the world is the right choice um, of words. But one of them is like, proactive, which is to get better understanding of other people's viewpoints and what they go through to build a, we call it building a better mental model of others. So if, you know, if you're one race, you probably don't know what it's like to be another race. It's hard to get that experience. Some of the new, there's some interesting VR tech that came out of um, Stanford and uh, Jeremy Balenson did some work on this about, you know, having your hands be black or white or, you know, whatever and, ch and change different than your own. And you would see them in the world and you would and they created some simulations on how other people looked at you to sort of give you that, not just a, a sympathy for it, but almost an empathy for it of like, oh, wow, I can actually feel what that's like, not just uh, pretend to understand how it feels or never. I mean, nothing beats a direct perceptual experience. So that was one of the things. Requires being proactive, but that's sort of part of it. Um, and so reading literature and, and watching, you know, from Hamilton on down the line, like I think there's probably something there that just understanding those perspectives is key. But a conclusion I, I mainly came to is we are, um, we have strong machinery in this realm of in-groups and out-groups and trying to fight it with our free will is a pretty tough proposition. It's just not likely to work out. And so really you have to pay attention. Like the real solution is however we decide to structure the world rather than try and overcome our biases. Cause we're always going to have biases. There's just no way. Um, the structure, I mean something like have where you can remove the ability for your bias to take place. For example, when you have musical auditions, why do you need to see the person? So have a screen and once that happened, um, you tend to get more gender balance also in orchestras just as a thing because you don't have the ability for your, yeah, you might be really conscious of it, but still subconscious. You, you still have different amounts of just predilections, whether it's for men or for women or whatever it is, everyone has biases. So remove them. Just don't even, don't even use your, don't even try to de-bias yourself if you can completely avoid it altogether. So that's that a big sense. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's like the light, the light version of the easy ones. 
the harder thing is what I'm really interested in is uh, when dividing us is good economics, then we're really screwed. Because then it's basically, okay, it's your brain versus a whole bunch of supercomputers that have a ton of data on you crunching and figuring you out because you are a pattern machine and you absolutely have patterns. That's what a habit is. Our brain's designed to make things easy and automatic so it doesn't have to think about it. But it's an enemy when you have a computer trying to decode you. You're like, oh, God, it's a losing battle. In the long term, if it's humans versus computers with infinite data and processing power on it, we absolutely lose. So maybe that's okay because tech does lots of good stuff, but it's the bad cases where it's rough when there's actually an incentive to manipulate you and how that we see that play out now, in my opinion, is outrage is a great business model. It's the best because it's like either you get people that love the content and then, hell yeah, I can sell you more ads or B, they hate the content and they sit there and comment and then I'm still (laughs) laughing because I can still sell you more ads. I'm like, I don't care. As long as you respond or, or engage... I do not care. I'm winning as a tech. Yeah, it seems like outrage and, and fear mongering both seem to draw a lot of clicks, a lot of attention, a lot of comments. So of course they're going to keep like shoving these things in our faces. They have a financial sure a of- obligation to do so. Right. Yeah. Yay, capitalism. Well, I, I still. I mean, I I don't support you know Marxism. So if I had to pick an economic right. model, I'd still yeah. pick capitalism. But the important, like the distinction here is you got to make sure you're incentivizing the right business models. And it's, exactly. I know that's like yeah. maybe too techie for, I don't know what the audience is here, but like, think about it. like the business, like, this is a unique thing and they touch on it in the social dilemma, but like a, it's a business model where because you're the product, they have an incentive to get you addicted. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I have more supply. Sweet. Like a hammer doesn't do that. You know, and a hammer doesn't care how many times you use it once you bought it. So it's it, what the social dilemma got wrong was that it didn't go far enough. It's not social media by itself. It's all technology where you are, where your supply is what they sell. So YouTube, I wouldn't call YouTube social media, but it absolutely is recommending you stuff that will get you to pay attention more and that tends to be outraged one way or another or yeah. fear-mongering, but something extreme. Whereas, sorry, and I, I don't yeah. know, I'll, I'll shut up, but like, <laughs> what they do is, well, is, is like all okay. these models are like all these supercomputers. They're just trying to figure out how to get you to engage. And then as a salesperson, I'll go and say, oh, well, it's not. Well, we're just trying to get people content that's relevant to them, content that they want. And notice that like that's branding. That's not the truth, right? Whether it's relevant or not, it's a story that they made up about what their algorithms do. The hardcore fact is they get you to click, period. If you wanted to find relevancy narrowly as whatever people click on, fine. But really, what if relevancy to me is something that I care about but don't have an outrageous opinion on? What if it's something from Reuters that's really about a shift in a business model that they don't feel really great about or really terrible? That long-term relevance, my long-term well-being, my long-term things that I care about, to me, that's relevance, not the short-term what you click on. And so we need to flip everything on its head that your long-term well-being is incentivized, not your short-term clicks. I guess where I start to get this little question mark because I think it was in The Social Dilemma, Mark Zuckerberg said something about like, we need better algorithms. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe. But this idea that tech creates a problem, like a big mess, and then tech is the solution. I'm just not immediately bought into you that should idea. Have. They almost got it right, but they didn't. Oh, it gives me goosebumps because I, at least in my head, I feel like this is the answer. And this is what I'm going after with this company. Um, but it's not that tech is bad. And it is or is not the solution. It's just a tool. The issue is not technology. The issue is the business model, period. No one, I mean, Uber and Lyft have their own sets of issues, but like overall, I would say they made the world a better place and that people have rides and people who want jobs driving at least have them. I won't, I'm not going to put my stake down there because look, I feel bad for taxi drivers and all of that. But I would say that like there's at least a, a, a claim to be made that that's what it is. And that's because it's a business model that doesn't require you being addicted. It just provides you with the service and then you're done. Maybe they try to get you to ride more, but it's not that bad. When Zuckerberg says, oh, AI is going to fix it, by itself, AI isn't going to fix it because what's in our head is the same business model of, oh, well, we're going to try and sell you tons of shit and maximize your attention, but we're going to have AI also check itself to maybe not sell you quite as much shit and maybe not quite as polarizing, but we'll find some other way to get it. It still doesn't compute. What I'm pioneering, I think, and you know, if someone else you know does it first, fantastic, but it's, it's 
it's flipping the model to where people own their data and they get to do with it what they want. That's what's missing from the business model is you need your data so that you are in control of what people do with your mind and what people sell you. Right now, it's Zuckerberg owns your data and he monetizes it and he, he buys new houses. He bought four houses near me. I was like, unbelievable. And, and I'm like, okay, great. I guess that sort of works. But wouldn't a better model be that uh, it's this big idea I'm calling advocational AI. We need, in a battle of humans versus supercomputers, we lose. And you can't just turn off super. What are you going to do? Ban matrix math? Like you can't ban recommender algorithms. You can't. It's, it's really it fundamentally as simple as multiplying numbers together. I, I built these and it's, uh, it's not something you can turn off. Like, and people are going to say personalized relevant content. So either people have to leave the platform, which probably won't happen, or there has to be a better model. So the model I think is advocational AI moving forward where you actually create businesses where you are the customer again, not the product. And so I then I build machine learning models. I build stuff that is incentivized to make your life better off. And then you finally have supercomputers fighting supercomputers on your behalf. And that's more of a fair battle. And that's, that's the only way I see it shaking out is we have to, we have to shroud ourselves with a protector and digital advocate. And so the way that we're doing that at this company invisibly is we are trying to get all your data in one spot on your behalf so that we can then advocate on your behalf and say, I do want to see ads for this because I'm interested in buying a new car. Why don't you all compete for me? I don't want to see those ads. I want you to destroy all this other data that these companies have. Like you, It's over. Like Humans are not going to win this battle without the help of computers on our side. So we need to have a whole economy of companies like Feedly where it's an AI that basically you give feedback on the articles that you read in like a long-term, do it, I really like it or enjoy it or not, and then it selects things for you rather than Google News and Facebook just trying to get you to click. It needs to be computers on your side that somehow is paid for by the business model. Do you mind if we like tease this apart a little bit more? Because I think for some people, like obviously I agree with you that we're not going to win against these supercomputers, but you know, you've mentioned to me just how manipulable we are. And I think a lot of people don't know that, don't recognize that. And so can we talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I built recommender algorithms. So I'll say that just by factoring your data in enough ways, I can definitely get people on average to click on an ad more, whatever ad, like we just, you can call it personalization or whatever, but um, that's clearly there. And then I won't dive into all the details, but you know, for, I would say 70 years, psychologists have studied all the biases that humans have like in detail and uh, from confirmation biases on down the line. And you, I remember there was a recent study that came out uh, that found that when you are presented with information that does n- does not sync with your viewpoint, you actually get a small stress response. Hmm. So, I mean, I hate to be hardcore about this, but nothing that you do is by accident. Your body has evolved for so long that, you know, why I can't believe people don't read news from other sources. Like, they're so myopic and it's like, <laughs> Well, if it actually tiny made you not feel very good, then you would understand why people didn't do that very often. It would take a real metacognition of like really thinking about your whole future to make sure you consume pro-Trump, anti-Trump, whatever, whatever news just to get the other side. And it doesn't feel good. So people don't do it. And that's not going to change. Yeah, it's true. I make a practice of doing that. And even though I'm consciously and intentionally doing it, it still doesn't feel good. That's so So, interesting. So you notice it, you feel it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I do want, I'm, I'm a deeply curious person. And so I am very interested in understanding both sides of most arguments. And so I know if I just only read news sources that are ultra left, that's not going to give me a comprehensive view of what people are thinking overall. So I try to read balanced media on both sides. And when I read stuff that really doesn't align with my views, I still kind of feel nauseous. So yeah. that's the thing. That's God, the thing. right. I have this theory that uh, it's only going to get worse. And I feel like I'm a doomsday sayer on this call. I didn't mean that. I'm generally a pretty positive person about it, but it just <laughs> the are. future seems pretty clear to me. Like I left, I left academia with some really strong opinions about how the brain works. And one of the fundamental principles is that your brain hates the burn energy. It is built, it's baked in. You are a moving battery and it has to find food every time and your brain burns 
20% of all your energy, even though it only weighs three pounds. That's a, it's super expensive. Brain cells are like 10x more expensive than the rest of your cells to deal with. They're firing, they're recharging, they're repolarizing, ions, all this stuff, ATP, it's tough. So your brain has evolved over millions of years in our case, but I mean, really over a long evolutionary trajectory, not to burn, not to think and waste energy if it doesn't have to. So in that context, thinking critically about stuff is not like that wonderful for your brain. Really, it's like, it's like it has to confront with like, is it, you know, the processing, like, is it really worth burning all this energy to consider all these new viewpoints and all this data? And so when you get a brain that doesn't want to think too hard mixed up with a world that has infinite complexity, like there is just so much detail in the world. And now that we have news outlets that can happily spit every fucking story at you, quote unquote story, everything that happens in rapid fire with no end versus a brain that doesn't want to think. What do you think the brain's response would be on average? I'm going to pick a side. I don't want to think about all this stuff. I won't even consider new evidence. Wow. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Just, I, and maybe sometimes I'll break out and I'll try new stuff, but like, that's what I want to see. And so then the recommender algorithms pick up on that and serve you more and more and more and more and more of that. Cause that's the only stuff you click on. And, um, I do not know how we're going to get out of that spiral. If not for having a balanced advocate on your side that, that handles your vulnerabilities, that defends you against the untrustworthiness of what's going on out there. That makes perfect sense. And I just think, you know, I've been reading this book called Perception that's pretty interesting by Dennis Prophet and Drake Bear. And it just goes into a bunch of different studies. And like, I mean, I could cite a million of them, but one in particular, a guy named Daniel Casanto did a study that basically they would show you two pictures like of aliens right by side, just like an alien drawing. And people reliably were, you know, and they were also asked to like ascribe attributes to the one on the right and the one on the left. And people would reliably and consistently ascribe more positive attributes to the one on their dominant side with no idea that they were doing that. It's like, if you're right-handed, the alien on the right is nicer and more attractive. If you're left-handed, the one on your left And so all of these kinds of things are happening in the background all the time. And we feel so in control of our decisions and our thought processes. And the more I learn, and I mean, David's book Incognito talks about this a lot too. It's like the more I learn, the more I realize we have no idea why we're doing half the things we're doing. It's all these unconscious processes designed for efficiency. Let's ask your listeners and, and viewers uh, right now a simple question. Where is your left foot? Okay. Did you consciously put it there in that exact position while you were listening to this? Or what about where's your tongue in your mouth? Right? Like all of those things your brain took care of for you because 95% of your life is unconscious. And you can, you can ask yourself this. When you see people doing gestures, did they think about every gesture? Or did their brain just handle it as a habit? And the, the hard truth is that your brain is not there for good looks. It's not there to be a beautiful thing in your skull. It's there to handle business and create do patterns and process information on the world and hopefully give us feelings of love and warmth and joy and friendship. Um, but it's not just motor stuff. You don't have just random, your brain isn't just taking care of all your motor thing and it stops there. Like how you think about things, what you just read and how that makes you feel. I see a lot happen in arguments where, well, I'll see something happen. I'll see like, People get into a fight and I can almost always trace it back to some event that happened. You can tell prime somebody to get into a fight. Like they just had a negative experience at work and they brought that home with them. And then they're just that much more likely to get into a fight. And it wasn't their spouse's fault. It was just, they had a bad day at work and they carried that like emotions are really sloppy and emotions are just the tip of the iceberg. There's all these calculations that are going on in your head and you, you think you came up with a great idea, but your brain's, been working on it subconsciously for days probably um it's hard it's hard to swallow and deal with i actually find it really empowering people interesting people freak out about the free will thing every article i i I read is it's always trying to debunk neuroscience to save the concept of free will and and let me know this is like too deep and too out there but i um i would say i generally don't i mean no one's ever been able to tell me what free will is i think it's usually it's there's some sort of like magic physics that some force from some other universe where your brain or soul resides 
your, your mind does, like controls, interferes with your physics of your brain. Something like that. It's got some kind of like non-physics magic, like something around there. I don't know what it is exactly, but yeah. that's usually, if, if it falls into that camp, like, I don't know the answer. Could be right. Totally could be. I, I do not claim to know how the universe works. I just find the perspective empowering that it's not that, that we are a, a, a machine. We have a machine in our head with feelings and our feelings matter and we should be treated with respect. Um, but, but if you think about it, like all this stuff about shame, when you shame somebody, it comes only when you buy into the free will crap. Because how you don't if your car if your car's brakes fade out you don't shame your car and make any like it's just a, it's a machine and this right. thing didn't wear out. But when we shame people, it's like we 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 were we're trying to invoke their biology and what, how they behave shouldn't be the way that it is. Like you, some supernatural power should intervene and you should not behave the way you should not use drugs despite the fact that you were raised in a broken home, got you know drug doses when you were you know in your single digit or in your early teens didn't have any money and all your friends do it. And then we expect you to overcome and use all your free will and choice to have the same power to, to overcome somebody who grew up extremely privileged, never needed money and never got exposed to drugs until let's say in their thirties and had a fully developed brain to make that decision. Do you really seriously think those are equal free will choices to make? If the answer is no, then congratulations. You buy into the fact that your the experiences are baked into your brain and your brain affects your behavior. And if you want to call it, you want to say carve out 20% of excuses for free will, fine, go for it. But I, um, I think it's, I think it lets us all off the hook for dealing with people in the criminal justice system who are, I have family members who went through who just get, they get screwed by it. And, and we pretend that they had the same choices as the rest of us who grew up and me in a very privileged, very lucky upbringing. And it's just not there. And if you take that perspective, then you, we as a society have to deal with it and address the fact that we set them up to fail. And we don't effectively rewire them when they come out of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Well, I think you're touching on something that is sort of that I'm seeing play out across multiple dimensions right now, which is this idea of nuance around free will, because a lot of people relate to it as this black and white concept. Like we have complete autonomy or we don't have any and we're just like automatons just running around. And you're, I think what I hear you pointing to is like, it's, there's a spectrum of free will and our experiences shape how we respond to things, but it's not just this, like the light switch where we have free will or we don't. I, uh, I would say that I don't really, it's a really cool summary of it. I would say that I believe that, uh, it's, I, I personally believe it's one or the other, but I don't know which one it is. Oh, interesting. Because I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't understand how 20% free will would work. Like, so if I cut out your motor cortex, like, do we still expect you to move your, move your body or not? And would it like, if I, I huh. where, where does free will come in and how come it can only be 20%? So I just, I, I, I guess I'm a David Eagleman possibility that I do not know. I'm comfortable not knowing. <laughs> I have two hypotheses that I hold in my head and I happen to, and then this is the truth with everything in our life. Everything actually boils down to at some point you don't have the data to make a decision and you just got to pick one. How do you raise your kids? What job are you going to do? You, I did all the investigation, but you don't know if that all of that data applies to you in your life. How do I not get addicted to technology? Well, do I use a site block or do I use all this stuff? It could work for somebody else and not work for you. So you never know. You never, ever, ever know how your life is going to be and turn out. So it's always on us to just eventually, okay, you choose. You find, and one way to do that choice is what perspective do I find empowering in my life right now, given that I do not know and will likely never know the answer? And I, you could pick the free will. If free will leaves you empowered and like, and, and roar, and then that's the right choice for you. And if you find that not having free will and acknowledging that we are beautiful machines with feelings is the right perspective, then you could join my club and uh, find it as like richly empowering that, that when people are not performing, what there is to do is just figure out a way to build a world that pulls something better out of that particular brain. Or, or helps them rewire in a way that works for them. And if that's a lot of the work that you do, that's so amazing. It's not like, uh, to me, it just seems like I've done research with anorexia nervosa and there are, brain, there are clear brain differences in people who have suffered, and not just from starvation states. It's from, it's from all across. It's, it's, what I found is it's actually the visual system processes information differently. So if you have body dysmorphic disorder yeah. or anorexia nervosa and your visual system is literally serving you up a different perception of the world, like 
how long are you supposed to deny what looks the most real to you? Like, isn't it a very reasonable, like, I don't know, reasonable in quotes, but you would expect that response in a lot of the cases. And so what there is to do is just figure out either how to build the world in a different way or rewire the brain in a way that works for that person and leaves them better off. Yeah, I think what I was what I was seeing is the the spectrum. I guess is because sometimes when people talk about free will, they talk about it very fatalistically. And what you're saying is sort of like, given your life circumstances and your biology, like your actions are predetermined based on that. But it doesn't stop there. It's sort of like okay, and then, and maybe I'm saying this wrong, but like, but it's like, and then how do we create? an environment that calls for you to show up in a way that is healthier and, you know, more meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just, I, I said sometimes shy away from predetermined because I don't know, there might be lots of uncertainty in the world. My, my major in college was physics. So like, I don't know about the quantum nature. I don't know about that. All I know is that there's a machine aspect to us that can learn and change and rewire ourselves. And I'm a big proponent of neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain. But if you just, if you were to just, just let go of the free will thing and say, okay, just for a second, try this perspective on, put on, put on the free, the no free will hat. You are a machine with feelings and those feelings matter deeply. And we all care about, you know, I hope that we all care about each other. It just leaves you with two powerful possibilities, which is either we decide to create a world that works for machines built that way. We decide to build a world where, Drugs are not available on every single street corner all the time because we acknowledge that our machines have limitations and vulnerabilities. And if you put heroin everywhere, likely you won't get a good outcome. I know that's a strong analogy, but right. it's just statistically not. not like We don't let kids take drink alcohol until they're 21, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that isn't about development. It's about choices uh, that we don't want them to make. So you either structure the world differently. And that reliably works. You can see that when you opt people into organ donation, you get higher organ donation rates. It's not a good or a bad thing, but that's a really clear statistical outcome based on how brains work. They don't want to deal with it, so they leave it opted in. That works in Europe. Option two, you decide to rewire yourself and to change your brain. And every time you learn, you I, I mean rewiring, like every time you learn something, your brain literally changes. Something about the connections changes, and so you can decide to interact with the world in a different way. You can decide, you know, decide is a funny word, but you, you know, you can pick up the idea that you're like, okay. I want to overcome my eating disorder and I'm now willing to take action. And I realize that uh, maybe my context around it's wrong, but I can't solve it. So I need Iris to come in and after enough of our training, my brain will literally be different and I will literally have a different context about the world. And that's empowering. doesn't require the world to change, but it's A or B. Right. And it's, I find it just empowering. Like, Hey, you're not screwed forever. You're not, you're not like your, your yeah. soul in some other dimension that's controlling your brain is not bad. You're not bad. It's not screwed and unchangeable. Let's just deal with the machine and try and change it. Yeah. Well, that makes me want to ask more questions about this advocational AI concept that you've mentioned to me. And, you know, part of some, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, which is, you know, we're creating AI. So in some ways it is inheriting some of our ways of looking at the world and some of our assumptions and so how do we create AI that doesn't inherit some of our worst qualities? You have to be really intentional about it because, yeah. <clears throat> um, how do I put this lightly? All data is biased. There is no objective data in the world. I say that as a scientist that I'm clear when I recruit a hundred subjects to do brain scans, they are not randomly sampled across the world with, you know, people have to come in. They are typically university students or people who work at the university or the surrounding area. Every study that's done out there is done that. Then layer on top of that biases from the researchers on what they want to see because there's a bias in publication because only things that actually get published in journals help your career. So you publish things that are sometimes a little bit sketchy so you can get the next grant to fund your lab to start the cycle over again. So there's a huge, huge issue in science of replicating other results. It's like 80% of science, let's say, at least in psych or some behavioral neuroscience, is garbage. Even in some cancer biology, like hardcore stuff, it's gar it does not reproduce to any reasonable extent. And so in a field where like we pride ourselves on being massively objective about data, if we can't get it right, I got some real doubts 
that anybody else is going to get it right unless we we are really intentional about it. And that gets back to the intentionality part of like when you train up, you know, this is a problem with training databases to try to find terrorists that they ended up, uh, you know, having a really high false positive rate. So over identifying people of Middle Eastern descent because of, from the database that they had, those were, you know, most of the, of the sample cases. And so that, that's how the training comes up. So then, but it's, that's a, maybe a particular example, but it's every, it's just mathematics is what's happening behind the scenes. So if you don't feed the right thing into the mathematics, it will produce a biased result. Racially, income, gender, uh, and then if you remove all those, it'll just be based on everything else and the millions of attributes about you that you don't have a word for. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the thing that always concerns me about this is just sort of the unintended consequences. Like, I'm pretty sure when Mark Zuckerberg was creating Facebook in his dorm room, he wasn't thinking about genocide happening half a world away. And so, like, what are the unintended consequences? And I think you're right. Like, we we have to be very intentional. And I'm interested what that... Like, if you're really playing this forward, how do you see that playing out? I wouldn't expect anybody's product to be fully, you know, its entire future to be clear. So I don't, I don't fault young Mark, let's say, you know, until he became sure, aware of yeah. what's happening. So I don't fault any yeah. of those people for creating something. You never, who knew that shooting particles through thin gold foil would lead to a nuclear bomb. I, I don't know. Physics just progressed that way. So all that cascades and, um, we have to decide as a society what we want to put effort into because we can't solve everything. So the mission of, as I see it, the mission of government is not, uh, I'll say what it is. The mission of government is to do the most good with the dollars that we give the government. Full stop. You will never eliminate all crime. You will never be able to stop all biased algorithms. We have to pick out the big sort of whack-a-mole, you know, what are the big things that are causing real serious problems and then trying to understand why they are and fixing them. So if we think that, you know, having your attention massively extorted and manipulated for dollars into big techs so Mark can buy more houses is a bad thing, then we should take action and figure out a way to do it and, and solve it and be intentional about the models and um, what's being built. But, you know, to some degree, it's private industry. They can build all the biased models they want. It's on you to walk away or it's on somebody else to create a better, more attractive business. So, I don't know, would you pay? I don't know, IRS, would you pay... $10 a month to join a social network that didn't serve yet. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Would you pay 20 bucks? Depends. Maybe somewhere in there, there's, you know, there's a thing. And so yeah. people are much more willing to sign up for free stuff. So that's what they get. That is the human pattern. So how do you, I just, I, I can't, I have a tough time faulting the mat, the people or the masses. Like if it happens to everybody that everyone gets addicted to this damn thing, I don't really feel like it's the people's fault and that they should free will their way out of it. It feels more like right. we should structure the world to occur differently to them. And I'm beating that point over the head, but like start with something like the social dilemma, get people woke and then offer them another more attractive alternative. You don't ask people to just go, cold, you know, most people don't go off cigarettes, cold Turkey. They have either they slim down or they have patches or, you know, there's another option to help them just relying on people to make the quote unquote right choice without emotional motivation from television, without, you know, statistical information from us and our podcast and other reasons to switch. Like they're just not coming. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I, I would be very interested to know how people's or if people's behaviors change after seeing something like the social dilemma. Cause this is something we see a lot. It's like you put photographs of like, lungs covered in tar on cigarettes in Europe and people still buy them. And so, you, you know, does ad? this help? When we were kids, Debbie, I think we've had the frying pan and the egg and like, this is your brain. Oh, on for sure. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it still gives you goosebumps. It's, it's brilliant. And, um, it is clear that like there are changes that come from things like that. I think that war, the war on kids using drugs has actually been successful. If you look at numbers, you know, how often they indicate they use, chemical drugs, let's say, uh, all, or first time, you know, first age of drinking and all that, uh, smoking pot, it all goes down. It's all gone down. So we've actually done a good job with this generation. Just the open question to me is like, did we just replace it with technological drugs? Right. Like I would, I'm sorry, but I just wouldn't, there's no chance, um, that my kids will have uh, their own phone with, you know, the ability to get on social media. 
Yeah. It's just, it's just, I don't, I wouldn't give my kids tech drugs. Just wouldn't do it. It's, it's very clear that there is a vulnerability of the human mind to being manipulated and destroyed by that. The way you just worded that tech drugs, I mean, that seems like a context shift that needs to happen. Because it is. It's precisely what it is. I'm trying to make, uh, it took a long time, but you know how smoking is this kind of like a filthy thing that people look at now. Like, you know, all respect to people that smoke and I get it, but like the branding of smoking is gone from sexy right, and fun to like, oh, like, why would you do that to yourself? I just think that we all uh, have to take a part of that in doing that with social media. That It's fine to use social media, but being heads down is like a low status, beta, gross move. You have no control. You look like an addict to me. Like, <laughs> that's the phrasing that might win the war. There's all these, right? So that's changing the context of the world that we want to lift in to pull better behavior from, you know, the, the machines with feelings that we potentially are. So what do we do with government and politics around these things? Like, well, I mean, we can talk about the election a little bit if you're game for it. Go for it. I've been, I've been polling. I just got some results today. What did you find? Uh, just, just full disclaimer that I'm the scientist and I don't, I don't, uh, endorse one or the other. I always sort of go down the middle. Um, so I'll just tell you what I found, which is that, uh, we have a much higher, uh, response rate of people voting for Trump than every other poll shows. Well, and just let me just backtrack for your audience. What we do, most, yeah. most polling, a lot of polling, uh, in 2016 and today is still done by calling landlines or calling phones. And you get a very biased sample who has a landline and who's going to answer the phone from random numbers. Um, some polling is done online, but we actually do online ads where instead of seeing an ad on a page, you see a poll and you can just vote without going anywhere. So we get these massive sample sizes. I think I have like 50,000 people um, in my in my sample, um, whereas the most polls have like 800. And we're finding, I don't know what else to say, other than we're finding more people say they will vote for Trump than a lot of the polls. And some places like California and Massachusetts, you see this. I mean, obviously, super blue states, no different than 2016 results clear. But it's these swing states where I have, I just got some results today. I have Trump ahead in Florida, uh, ahead in Ohio, uh, a little behind, too close to call in Michigan. Um, but we, we're posting all these results today. Uh, I don't know when you're going to post this podcast, but uh, before the election or yeah. after? Yeah, before. Okay, great. So uh, I'm just, uh, we'll make a final prediction. The company's invisibly and we have a, a research site, but I um Again, it's just getting through the biases of people like people are are or not going to answer phone and other types of surveys. How can you get a less biased, more widely distributed sample? And uh, we think we found it. So I have pitched. It's the weirdest thing. I just uh, I pitched it to every mainstream media outlet I can think of. And no one will touch the story. Whoa. I, I got in this fight with the political editor of The Washington Post and um, just, uh, you know, what. It is what it is, and I guess you know maybe they're health, maybe they're properly skeptical. We've never predicted an election before, but uh, we'll see how it goes. And it's going to be very a lot closer than the polls are showing. Did they give a reason? They gave a reason, but that is probably my assessment was that's not what actually made their decision. Their reasoning was that it, it hasn't yeah. been proven, and this methodology is new, and. Uh, you know, all the, yeah. you know, and we're not professional pollsters and yeah, all of which are potentially fair points. Why you wouldn't even put it into dialogue about is the thing that's, it's this, it's, and this is the issue. It's like institutions gate new narratives. They, they, why they have an interest to protect what they have that's working. So why would they, um, so I'm not surprised. I'm just a little, uh, I'm just a little, I'm trying to figure out how people break through. And I guess you just have to wait till the, the bomb drops. And, uh, if I'm right, I'm right. And if I'm wrong, then, then, then I'm wrong. But that's where I'm showing. Yeah, that is very interesting. And something that I don't know if neuroscience offers us any insight into this, but I've been very interested, especially, you know, watching the debates, which was tough, I have to say. Um, There are certain, like Trump likes to say things that or just kind of make things up or say things that aren't true. And I'm sure both candidates do that to some degree, but he particularly does. And I'm just interested, like people don't seem to care that much. Sounds like they don't care. I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to understand. Sounds like you place a high value on truth. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) As much as we're able to, you know, this is my problem with like the, uh, you know, Dawkins and, and, um, the God delusion, this whole, you know, this whole, thing about it is like logically god can't exist and first of all that's probably too far to go because 
we just don't know. But it just presumes that people care about the truth and people fundamentally don't. All story, like we are, Yuval Harari's got this nailed that we are, we are, we've been telling stories about the world that aren't true for our entire evolution. Do you really yeah. think that somehow now, like, now all we care about is data and the truth? Like, we're not, we didn't morph into logic bots. So, <laughs> for when it comes to religion, I think there's probably a whole group of people that attend, but maybe have their logical doubts about it because they find it empowering. They find that going to church or mosque uh, with their, you know, their compatriots is a community and makes them feel clear about the world. They don't have to deal with the chaos of all the, you know, nuance of what happens. They have a really clear story and everything fits in that framework. And um, I think people probably have a real stress reduction advantage to that. And that's why it exists probably and continues to persist to some degree. Like there's a whole bunch of other reasons, but that's a, to me, seems like a very clear answer. And so why does the truth matter to you? Maybe, I mean, because the truth matter does how you feel matter, and the truth happens to make you feel good, but for other people, it, uh, it's truthy. Right. Well, yeah, and I think that's true. And but yeah, I think you know Michael always tells me that that every day is opposite day for Iris, and I think that's true because it's like a lot of people don't want to hear the truth because maybe the truth is scary or maybe the truth is complicated. And for me, I find that more comforting than hearing a nice story that makes me feel good temporarily. I think it either is good for or correlated with like, it's just sort of highly intellectual people that it's nice to hold different hypotheses and relative weights of evidence. But like, if you really zoomed out, you'd have to, we are all drawing a line somewhere where it's truthy enough for us. Like I'll ask you this, does the sunscreen significantly help with sun cancer? I'm not up on the current research on that, but my understanding is that it does. We're all willing to buy the story. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's pretty reasonable. It does help with basal, uh, you know, <laughs> basal cell. And, um, but it, you know, I was just looking, I was like looking at papers the other night. Somehow I got down a tangent and like, it maybe helps a little bit with melanoma, but there's plenty of papers that don't find correlations there. And also melanoma has generally lower rates. Uh, it's just a very unlike, you know, it might improve your relative risk, but absolutely. It's just, melanoma is not that big of a, of a killer. And so, I don't know. I didn't look at the data. It seemed truthy enough for me. I said, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> so, like, that, it's, yeah. there's, a, you know, tens of thousands of papers published every month. Like, if you're not staying up to date on all of them and ingesting them, and you're buying in, you call you, you think you're up to date on the truth, but you didn't get into the nuance. You didn't really understand it. You so understood true. it goodly yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, so I almost hesitate to go into this, but let's just do it. You know, when you're talking about, like, bias and science, and right now there seems to be this, again, polarization that we're seeing around coronavirus and what's legitimate science and what isn't. And I'm just curious to hear your perspective on that, given what you were saying about, you know, there's no unbiased data. What are your thoughts about this sort of resurgence of doubt in science? Is there a resurgence of doubt in science? Do we know that's true? It feels that way. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but sort of the anti-mask movement and things along those lines where people are, maybe they're just louder than they have been, but it seems like uh, an increase. I think people have been, I, I continue to say that storytelling has been, you know, one of the prime ways that humans evolved and formed tribes and gathered together and formed social bonds. And so expecting us to jettison all that for distributions of expected outcomes and Daisy and priors is not going to happen. Uh, and so I don't know if there's a resurgence. Maybe it just shifted. Maybe the flat earth thing got boring or whatever. Um, here's the thing. <laughs> Actually, this ties into a bigger principle. I think that you see you see this in cases where you don't feel like there's any real serious threat to yourself. And I say that with the flat earth thing, it's like, it's hilarious. I love watching everyone troll Neil deGrasse Tyson because I think they're doing it on purpose. And the truth is, <laughs> if you said, fine, go build a space shuttle and I want you to either take the circular orbit or the flat earth one, I bet you people will pick the circular orbit. But posting on social media has almost no consequence. So why not have fun? I mean, again, it's just an incentive thing here. Like, I don't care what the, well, I don't care what the truth is. I care what my entertainment value is because I had a long day and I want to go home and troll Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, I will see more and more and more of this. If you remove people from actual expectations and consequences, then they will behave in uh, ways that make you think they don't believe. But when it really came down to it, I'm sure they would believe. So there are anti-vaxxers, but it's not, it's not a huge fraction. They're just loud. 
Okay. So you think some of it is entertainment value? Just so we're clear, I'm not getting the COVID vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just, there have been cases of quickly run through vaccines against swine flu, for example, where people got side effects. They got uh, narcolepsy. They got like lifelong consequences. So that's not part of the problem with science is that we we're so defensive against people maybe poking holes in the in the in the gaps that we do have in our knowledge that we shrink those gaps. Like the debate about climate change, do I believe climate change is happening? Absolutely. Do I think it's one hundred percent? No. Nothing is one hundred percent in in science. What degree of the change is due to other factors? I don't know. I'm not an expert. But whenever anyone says it's undisputable, they are lying to you or selling you something. Period. Science never. We don't prove stuff. We don't even have a fundamental theory of the universe. Like gravity works most of the time, except at big scales, because instead of the universe going back together, it's actually expanding outward faster. There's massive gaps. So let's not pretend that we know everything. It's all, that's bullshit. Um, but when it comes to the vaccine, the, the, you know, these vaccines for COVID, yeah, I am, I am absolutely a little bit concerned about it. I don't think that's illogical. Sure. It's actually, seems quite no, reasonable to me. If you're high risk, I would do it. And just so we're clear, COVID is bad, but everything lives in the nuance. So how much truth do you want? Is COVID bad on average? Yes. Is COVID bad uh, when you're older, much different than if you're younger? Absolutely. It's a, you're so much riskier when you're older and so much riskier when you're overweight or have prediabetes or other, other, you know, vulnerabilities. And, 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 and that's the nuance of it. Is it, is it, is it that dangerous for people in lower age brackets? When I look at the data, it, it is dangerous, but it's not like, it's not Armageddon in that case, if you get it. So just, you know, yeah. again, to what degree do you really care about the truth? Do you just want to settle for an average or do you want to get in the nuance of it? And we all have to draw a line somewhere Yeah. of understanding. So I think just boiling back, you know, I guess circling back, go ahead and boil back. But circling back to your thing about, you know, trust in science, I just think the world is complicated and this dynamic has broken out about scientists being overconfident because they don't want people to be able to poke holes in their things that are true on average, but still have not completely obviously true. And so we overstate it. And then people reasonably say, well, that's not fucking right. Uh, there is, that is that you don't know this. And um, that's a bad dynamic to have. So I am more in favor of just telling you, yeah, there's a lot of things I don't know. Um, if you look, I don't know that gravity will be true in five seconds, but I'm certainly going to live my life based on the idea that it probably is. <laughs> I certainly won't jump well, off my roof. Yeah. That kind of answers or at least begins to answer the question that was forming for me, which is given that there is so much nuance and complexity and just this, uh, the enormity of what we don't know, how do we function in the world? <laughs> I think you sort of point to it there. You never do. You've yeah. always had this. It's just now you're thinking about it intellectually, but we've always had indecision. Like, do I go hunt here, here? Well, statistically, this has been better, but today's raining and I've never actually... I don't know where there's more food when it rains. Maybe all the, the, the prey go away. So I'm gonna, I don't know the answer and I'm going to have to just make a decision on where to go hunting. You know, imagine this is our ancestors. Yeah. And so we always have indecision. It's fundamental. And all that matters, I think, for like in those cases is what's the strategy that works for you? Is it is it to be positive and empowering irrespective of the data? Is it to only follow the hardcore data truth? Is it to be, is it to delegate responsibility to an artificial intelligence who makes the decision for you? So you don't have to think. I don't know, but humans have always dealt with uncertainty and now it's just a matter of um, it's more in our face and it happens a lot. So if you want to make some kind of future prediction about what AI looks like in terms of advocating for us, I mean, it sounds like you're working on it presently. Is that right? Yeah, we're working on it. So I can't, I can't say too much about it other than okay. uh, I'm clear from my perspective that the world uh, on this trajectory doesn't look good doesn't look good to put brains against supercomputers because our natural evolution is over for humans. We're done. That phase of our history or whatever is over. We're either going to morph with silicon and the neural link or something. We, you know, you, you lose an arm and then we'll have the mechanics to replace that. And then you lose your spleen. Then we replace that. And eventually we'll be able to replace your brain. I think is a much more, I think becoming a, becoming bionic is a much more likely future than Terminator or whatever. So let's hope so. I don't. I don't think there's going to be any conscious algorithms. It's just the scary thing that they're going to do exactly what they're programmed to do, just like we do. Yeah. If you again, there's the free will thing. I guess coming back that informs my prediction of like, 
sure consciousness is there, but I don't think that our actions are, are, I don't take the stance that they're governed by us in some other dimension. It's just the cascade of our biology and experiences manifested through brain and muscle connections. So I assume the same will be true of AI that it'll just literally do what it literally does. And consciousness is not required. I do think that I'm worried about people's jobs. I do think that it's a pretty unique yeah. shift to lose. There were, uh, Yuval Harari, again, I'm just going to give him credit because it's his idea that the, the first revolution where we switched out of jobs and got displaced by machines was we switched from physical to mental labor. But now computers are taking over mental labor to some degree. I don't know where we go. Maybe, maybe there's a period where we're like social bots because we have better social understanding than them and we work on business and those type of inputs. Um, but then at some point you got to wonder like, will humans produce enough value to be considered? Um, I'm worried about that for the next generation that if we continue to go down this addicted path of being slave to technology and social networks and bots, then you will cease to have enough value to be worth anything in the future. And you know what? You will stop being targeted by AI, but it's because you provide no value and don't have any money to give the people who are interested in you as a kind of a spooky outcome. So I think it's super important that we protect our brains from what everyone is trying to monetize uh, on us and manipulate us. Um, And I think the only way fighting back is supercomputers. So we are building the big first scale educational AI that will be your digital assistant and advocate. Well, thank you for that. That's pretty amazing. I can hope so. Yeah. Um, I think a key, and then I'll just, I want to address the fall. Sometimes the follow up question there is like, well, how do I know you're going to be good? Uh, you know, you could do bad stuff with my data, which is a totally fair point because we're built of humans too. We're just a company. Um, I think that, the important thing is structuring the business model such that you are not the product, you're the client. So if it doesn't work That's for right, you and doesn't yeah. make your life better, then you leave and there's no business and the thing shuts down. It has to work for you. Right. Well, and that's what I wonder about with some of this AI stuff, taking all of our, our jobs or sort of making humans obsolete in a certain way. I just sort of wonder, I mean, clearly you're a perfect example of somebody asking these bigger questions but I'm wondering about some of these other companies where it's just like progress, 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 progress for the sake of progress and money. They're not asking the question, like, how does this play out over the course of 10 years? And what is the impact on humanity as a whole? Totally. And I don't think that's going to change. People want to make money much stronger than they want. I mean, there's all these visions in Silicon Valley, but I, I mean, um, I don't think that that is the majority or the only driving factor. So some of it's the dollars and, you know, you don't, you can, you can tell yourself any story you want. Like, oh yeah, maybe that can happen, but we're going to, we're going to not let that happen. We're going to be really there for the better and the good. And, you know, I'm a human too. I have my own vulnerabilities and who knows where this goes. So I think, again, the only thing you can do is, is set up a, a business model and a, and a structure that pulls for good behavior. Otherwise you will probably get bad behavior. Yeah, it seems like what we're heading down. And same I think- thing with people though. It's the same thing. Like if you set people up with bad environments, then they behave antisocially in the future. That's the inequality, the whole inequality and privilege dilemma. It's the exact same thing. We like set them up in an environment. Okay. You know, we don't give them extra schooling. You know, there's not enough daycare. There's like low income, all this stuff. And then, and then, and then that's how it plays out. And they get stuck in this crappy feedback loop and some people escape, but to pretend that doesn't exist to companies and how we program machines and how we program people. It's just, I think it's lying to yourself. Well, I'm curious to sort of wrap this up aside from the project that you're working on, what are some things and the answer could be nothing, but what are some things that give you some hope right now, given that some things look pretty grim? I think, yeah, I think it only plays out a couple of ways. So I'm just pulling up what I wrote about. I think I generally got it, but uh, so the, the, the economy as it works now, doesn't work for humans. We're going to get screwed in the long term. So something's got to shift. There's only a few ways that can happen. One, you have a digital advocate who fights on your side against big tech and everybody else who wants to fiddle with you. Um, two, we decide to just nuke all data and say, no one owns anything, delete it. Uh, no recommender system. Everybody sees the same reality. Uh, and then you can't have, you know, on one, you can't have personalized offerings. You can't say, oh, you might, Amazon can't say, oh, you might really like this product. But on the other hand, you can't be like, hey, you might really like this extreme content video. You know, so they go hand in hand. Right. You got to pick, either you do the mathematics or you don't to try and personalize the information. So you could destroy all data. Uh, or three, and three, which in parallel, people need to 
be informed that this is going on. You are being bought and sold and manipulated. And if you don't believe me, I, I guess I can't help you. But um, there's, on average, maybe you're not one of those people. On average, people are highly susceptible to all these interactions, and they people are micro influencing you just along these journeys. Like you talk with people, and you know, you talk to people, and they do or don't think it happens. But I'm telling you. On average, it happens. If you don't agree with me, you're a science denier, right? That's the new language I'm allowed to use. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're a science, <laughs> you're a science denier if you don't believe that. Um, so if if that rattles you up enough, then I would start to act actively take your attention back, and that includes things like turn off all notifications. That's the the default is nobody may talk to you. You your brain power is too important for every stupid app to send you and interrupt you because it takes a lot of time to get back on track. Science will show that too. So. Um, so turn off all notifications. Turn off. I don't. Have, I don't accept calls from unknown numbers. I got a robo blocker. I have a lot of websites banned on my browser because I I have low self control moments. And I'm just. I open up Facebook and I open up the news feed and think and then my web my thing will stop and say this website's banned and you got to go through this long thing to sign in to make it happen. So again, protect against your bad programming that is there. And um, there's a few ways to do it. So turn off all notifications. Uh, site blockers. I actually literally most of the time have my phone in a different room. I'm fortunate enough to be able to buy an Apple watch. So I have a watch, which is linked. And that way, if anyone calls me and it's really important, then I'll get it. But nothing else is really that important for my job. I work on my, on my laptop. So I don't get, I don't want to be, you don't walk around, you know, you don't have candy everywhere. When you don't have candy in your pockets when you walk around because that's just a bad combo. And if you're an alcoholic, you don't have alcohol in your mouth, in, in your house. Right. And so we could all pretend we're in control of social media, but if you're a person who has ever found themselves doom scrolling Facebook and and you don't even remember logging on, you don't even remember opening the app, maybe there's some amount of control to be gained back and you can do so if you, in a moment of clarity, you decide, fuck this, I am absolutely not letting Facebook own my life or Instagram yeah. or TikTok or whatever. I love that. Are you familiar with Kelly McGonigal's work? Where? She wrote a book called Kelly McGonigal, uh-huh. her work. She wrote a book called The Willpower Instinct, but she talks about this sort of like in your moments of lucidity, plan for your vulnerabilities. That's a good way to put it. David would call and that then, a Ulysses contract. You're making a contract with your future exactly. self. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I, I mean, I'll, you know what? Why don't I just close the show by rattling off, uh, uh, what do they call it? Attention recovery. I'm just going to like rattle off the things that I've come up with that I think maybe would help people as like actionable things. And they could not just walk away with done as all he does is philosophy. Um, <laughs> I, call, oh, I call it attention hygiene. It's attention hygiene. It's just like you, you know, shower and take control of your other stuff. You should take control of your attention. So um, a few things on there. Let's see. Attention. Oh yeah. There we go. Um, one thing, so site blockers. So ban yourself from going to certain sites like Facebook unless you have to do a long login because you'll, you'll be pulled to do those things if you are pulled. Um, so you can block those. You should turn off all notifications that we talked about that. When you're in an open office, if we ever go back to work, then I personally listen to brown noise or white noise when I'm in Starbucks because you're, you know, think about it, your brain's having to process everything that happened and, and like filter out only the important stuff. So you're kind of making it spend some energy and doing all that. I wouldn't do that. I would just listen to something such that it blurs out uh, the environment. Um, I would face away from people traffic because otherwise you'll look up and watch people going by. Um, I would make a daily replenishment routine, like in the middle of the day, whatever it is for you. Uh, you only have so much juice and your brain runs out of – your your executive center, your prefrontal cortex tends to run out of juice first. And that's why you'll just, you, you've got plenty of motor cortex energy to, to, to scroll, but you can't tell yourself no. And if you didn't believe in free will and just said I'm a machine, you could you could actually acknowledge that. Otherwise, I imagine your your free will self in another dimension should have infinite um, root energy. So maybe you don't you don't have to believe me. Um, you can take a nap, you can take a cold shower. Yeah, I'm really harping on free will. I don't know why. I just I guess I have a strong opinion about it uh, about what's empowering. <laughs> another thing is I would do uh, only have, here's a challenge: have one tab open at a time. And this one's courtesy of Adam Ghazali. Oh boy. That's tough. If you're really only focusing on one thing, if you need to do deep work and not just shallow, you know, emails and back and forth, minimize it or literally close it and have one tab and work on that one tab. Isn't that isn't that isn't that weird that it's a crazy idea to work on one thing at a time, given that we are not multitasking machines? Yeah. We are monotaskers. <laughs> the human brain was built for monotasking. You don't have parallel consciousness. You have one consciousness, and it just 
Luck. Uh, make fewer choices. So I like to automate things I don't care about. Like I'm not a foodie, so I order the same three salads every week and I go pick them up and then I eat them and that's fine. So I eat them while I'm on doing whatever else I'm doing. And so um, every time you make a choice, it takes a little bit of brain power. And if you don't find it empowering, just stop. Put it on an Amazon subscription, automate it. Using virtual assistants is good too, just to handle stuff like I, every time a thought comes in my head, I add it to my phone uh, as like a reminder. So I don't have to have to, your brain doesn't have to maintain that memory uh, and, and ignore other creative behaviors you want to do. And the last thing I would just say is like quantify behavior. So measure yourself, look at your screen time, look at how happy you are on a day-to-day basis. I, I mean, to close it out, what I ended up finding was every day I logged on to the news or opened up Facebook or looked at Twitter, I was physically immediately less happy. I just hate it. I was like, oh God, people, this is worse. I feel that, yeah. Twitter, especially lately. Twitter. Because it's, it, I think it's, uh, I, I keep saying I'll close. I'll close with this, that I think it's an empathy <laughs> thing, which is when I look at you, Iris, I have all this empathy and I have all this emotion. But when you interact with somebody as a text box, they're, they're barely human. They're not even really human. You don't get the same bottom-up input of I'm really hurting a person. I'm really affecting a real human being's emotions right now. And um, so then... Not shockingly, your pattern of behavior is to do more and more ambitious things. Boom. Night drop. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This was really interesting. And I'm really excited for the project that you're working on. I feel like, you know, if I were to answer that question of what makes me hopeful, it's people like you working on projects like that give me a lot of hope. So thank you. Thanks, Iris. Yeah, I'm, I'm so jazzed about it. I feel like I feel like I've found finally how to translate how to make a brain compatible world where the way that we live and the way that the world deals with us is more likely to be aligned beautiful and more of the garbage that's going on so thanks for having me on yeah of course